0: Chapter 8 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 8 On 1st May in this year, 1878, Oscar Wilde appeared at a fancy dress ball at Headington Hill given by Mrs. Morell. He presented himself in the costume of Prince Rupert, and his fine and striking appearance was commented upon in the social chronicles of the time. For some period of his life subsequent to this event, he was to be seen figuring in masquerade. Later on, society forced him to assume another travesty, which in its essential features was not dissimilar to the one he had assumed when he went up to London in the role of a professor of aesthetics and art critic, as Foster describes him in his Alumni Oxonienses. The more one studies the lives of great men, the more does the certitude impress itself upon one that our human destinies are ruled by a power of which a mocking irony is the prime characteristic. The ancients discovered it long ago. The modern world is beginning to perceive it. For some part of his life... Oscar Wilde masqueraded in defiance of society, and then later on society made him masquerade in defiance of himself. An authoritative writer, who, however, throughout Oscar Wilde's career was his sternest critic and censor, declared at the time of his downfall that Oscar Wilde had been heard to explain that the reason why he assumed that costume which it pleased him to describe as the aesthetic costume, was merely to attract attention to his personality. He adds that Oscar Wilde had said that for months he had tried in vain to find a publisher for his collected poems, and that, having failed to do so, because he was an unknown man, he determined to make himself known, and had hit upon the device of appearing in public in an extraordinary dress, he adopted as the aesthetic costume a velvet coat, knee-breeches, a loose shirt with a turned-down collar, and a floating tie of some unusual shade, fastened in a valliere knot, and he not unfrequently appeared in public carrying in his hand a lily or a sunflower, which he used to contemplate with an expression of the greatest admiration— Let it be added to this that he wore his hair long, and was clean-shaven as to his face, and when it is remembered how striking a form and what memorable features were his already by nature, it will be understood what attention his appearance must have attracted. One might find other and more charitable explanations for this self-travesty, Perhaps with all the more justification that commercial instinct does not appear to have been very strong in Oscar Wilde. He was a young man at the time. He was by nature and atavism inclined to schwamerei. He may have thought that the costume suited him. He may have wished to set society at defiance at the prompting of that anarchist spirit which was within him, as it is within all men who are really great. For the rest, Whatever the man's motives were, that he gave effect to his plan shows that he possessed great moral courage. It is by no means every man who has the strength of mind to make a laughing-stock of himself in the eyes of London. The London gamins are pitiless, and on each of his walks abroad the young aesthete must have veritably run the gauntlet— It may further be noted that many men and women of approved capacity have shown, and do show, this curious love of self-advertisement. It has already been the malady of the great. In recent years, it has grown into an epidemic. The advance of commercialism may account for it. "'Commercialism has made it clear that the only method by which a man can call attention to the excellence of his wares is by persistent puffery. "'Artists, actors, writers, philosophers and politicians have equally wares to sell. "'In this age, every man who is not independent is a tradesman of sorts.' and one can hardly blame them if they adopt the means for selling these wares which succeed in other branches of trade. The public, moreover, is gradually becoming so accustomed to these methods that, far from regarding with suspicion the man of letters who, by the eccentricity of his costume, the length of his hair, the frequency or the rarity of personal mentions and portraits of him which appear in the papers, is the carrier of his own advertising boards, the importunate distributor of personal leaflets. It gives more and more its exclusive attention to the person who most loudly shouts his wares. This is the case in England and America. In the Latin countries and in Germany, where art is still regarded in much the same light as religion, these tricks would fail of their desired effect. But in England we are a commercial nation, and as Dr. Johnson never tired of pointing out to Boswell, we must be dealt with by commercial methods. There is no call in this biography to give any extended description of that aesthetic movement in England, with which Oscar Wilde, for a short period of his life, and for motives which are not quite clear to us, associated himself, Anyone who is curious on the subject of one of those crazes which sent the British public once more into what Carlyle called a bottomless abyss of delirium and confusion and nameless distraction, footnote. Carlyle once observed to my father, upon the whole, the British public, with its contagious enthusiasms, reminds me of nothing so much as the Gadarene swine, There they are quietly grubbing and grunting in search of what pignuts or other elements may present themselves for their sustenance and comfort. When suddenly the devil enters into them, up go their tails into the sky and away they go, plunging into bottomless abysses of delirium and confusion and nameless distraction. Random Reminiscences by Charles H.E. Brookfield End footnote should read Walter Hamilton's excellent and most interesting book, The Aesthetic Movement in England, to which already frequent reference has been made, and from which material yet remains to be drawn. It is the work of a man who was not unsympathetic with the movement, and who had for the leaders and camp followers of it esteem, admiration, or tolerance. And side by side with Mr. Hamilton's book, the volumes of punch for the years 1880 to 1883 may be turned over. It is from the satirist that one learns most of social life, and Juvenal and Saint Simon are the best historians. The aesthetes wrote Mr. Hamilton, are they who pride themselves upon having found out what is the really beautiful in nature and art, their faculties and tastes being educated up to the point necessary for the full appreciation of such qualities, whilst those who do not see the true and the beautiful, the outsiders in fact, are termed Philistines. Even at the height of the craze, there was a very considerable proportion of the public in England who did not even know the meaning of the word aesthetic. It was usual enough to hear people express the surmise that as anaesthetic was something which sent you to sleep, anaesthetic must be something which... The movement was generally associated with sunflowers, certain peculiar shades in pottery and tissues, a languid demeanour, and a certain angularity of furniture and attitude. The penalty for this craze is still being paid by an innocent posterity in the enormities of cheap and tawdry accessories which are forced upon the ignorant public by the manufacturers, under the sacred name of art, never so ruthlessly profaned. As usual, certain men who put themselves forward as active agents of the movement, of the reform, attained to popularity and wealth. Certain tradesmen, commercial or self-styled artistic, emerged from poverty and obscurity by supplying the properties of the burlesque which England was enacting. The sincere men who had initiated all this enthusiasm remained, as usual, in the background, and continue today in the same serene solitude and silence the work they then began. For his part in popularising their theories one might almost say in burlesquing them, Oscar Wilde derived a certain and wide notoriety, leaped into the public eye, found a publisher for his poems, and, in the event, engagements to lecture in the Three Kingdoms and in America. On the other hand, he started his artistic career amidst the suspicion of his contemporaries. This suspicion still clings to his name, the public memory is tenacious the public mind does not readily accord to one man the right to play more than one part in life it is diffident of versatility universality of genius it blankly refuses to admit the funny man can never get people to take him seriously sydney smith has described this the hands worst must be hands worst till the end of the chapter there can be no doubt that Oscar Wilde's early eccentricities created an erroneous impression concerning his capacities which, for years, militated, and in certain quarters still militates, against the reputation which his high genius entitled him to enjoy. Fame is not to be violated with impunity, and when the claims of the Pont d'Arcal were denied, could the peacock's feather and the sunflower prevail? The pose, such as it was, was eminently successful. If notoriety were sought after, it was gained to the fullest extent. Punch celebrates week in, week out the eccentricities of the school. On the parts played in this circumstance by both De Maurier and Bernard, Mr Hamilton's most interesting book can be consulted. There can be no doubt that all the time when Oscar Wilde was thus mumming and masquerading, the bitterness at his heart was great. Knowing what was in him, feeling the flame of the genius that burned within, conscious of the part that he might have been playing on the stage of the world, to none more than to himself can his notoriety, acquired as it was and kept alive by such means, have appeared despicable and a matter for regret. At the same time, it helped him to some extent to gain that entree into London society, which, when he left Oxford and went to the metropolis, was his immediate object. The lion hunters with which the capital abounds were not sorry to be able to produce at their tables and during their receptions the man about whom England was speaking, and of whom the comic papers made weekly sport. In this way, he certainly achieved some part of his purpose, which, otherwise, might altogether have failed of effect. For in a world where the first question that is asked about a newcomer is, What has he got? And the next is, Who is he? The younger son of an Irish professional man, with the very smallest of incomes, was doomed by the very nature of things to utter failure of his social ambitions, In addition to this, the reputation of his brother Willie, who had preceded him to London, was already a damaging one, and there is no doubt that Oscar's subsequent animosity towards his brother was caused by his remembrance of the extent to which he had been a stumbling block in his early path, when the conquest of social London was the aim of his endeavours. But for the curiosity which attached to his name, it is certain that none of the doors through which he desired to pass would ever have opened before him. As it was, he had the moderate social success which London accords en passant to those who can divert its stagnant ennui. But he was never popular in society. He was mistrusted and misunderstood. And in the end, he was disliked. His superiority was too crushing, The men and women who gathered round him wishing to laugh had the disagreeable surprise of finding that the buffoon's bladder was weighted with lead and that the point of his wit left an intolerable sting behind it a letter is in existence written by a lady who belongs to the highest english nobility and who saw him in those early days in london she appreciated his qualities to the full but she also was forced to admit that, as far as winning the suffrages of what is known as good society in London, he failed utterly. I knew him, so runs the letter, first at a Huxley dinner, just after he left Oxford. I was then old enough to be his mother, but I thought I had never met so wonderful and brilliant a creature. Even you, she adds, addressing the person to whom this letter was written, seem hardly to know how the ordinary run of English society hated him. I was never allowed to ask him to our house. How unconscious he must have been of this hatred when he thought that society would stand by him. Poor thing! That he should have represented an aristocrat to the howling crowd is most curious. One has to remember that England is a commercial country where worth, merit, character, quality, genius are estimated only by the amount of money which a man earns or possesses. The only poet who is allowed to show consciousness of superiority is the poet who can show from royalties earned by his books an income superior to that enjoyed by the people whom he wishes to impress with his superiority. Our novelists rank according to the amount of shillings or pounds they receive per thousand words. In England, the poor man is not allowed to show pride. Assumption of superiority, which in the man of genius is inevitable, is resented in English society when that man of genius is not able to show the actual cash value of his talents. That the younger son of a Dublin oculist who was reported to have a bare 200 a year, derived from land in Ireland, should try to impress London society, should show superiority and act with arrogance, was such an offence against the first precepts of English society and the Church of England catechism that the hatred and indignation of his contemporaries can only be too readily believed.' It requires a man more versed in psychology than is the ordinary man of the world to understand that a man of genius is proud because he is conscious of his superiority, because he cannot help but feel this superiority, and feeling it cannot help but show it. Guard himself against this as carefully as he may. When André Chenier, waiting his turn at the guillotine, struck his head against the uprights of the instruments of punishment and infamy, and cried out, And yet there were great things here! The mob roared with laughter. The mob always laughs when the man whom it has degraded yet claims any kind of preeminence. Oscar Wilde, in these early days of the attempted conquest of London, displayed a pride which impressed the onlookers as arrogance. He figured as the maitre, he assumed the office of arbiter, and he was, perhaps, too young and inexperienced to carry the burden of the part. He used to relate with some gusto certain of the retorts which he had made during this period. They display that quality which Rabelais describes as outrecuidance which, where it does not subjugate, excites inextinguishable enmity. One of these stories also shows his readiness of repartee. One day, arriving very late at a luncheon party, his hostess mildly remonstrated with him for the delay, pointing to the clock in support of her rebuke. "'And what, madam?' he answered. "'Do you think that that little clock knows of what the great golden sun is doing?' The retort was an able one, but none the less would that hostess feel that as an excuse for her burned entrees and the inconvenience of her other guests. It was hardly the amend honorable which she was entitled to expect, and in her heart there would be a feeling of grudge against the wit. This anecdote enables one to institute a comparison between the readiness and powers of repartee of Oscar Wilde and the same qualities in that rival of his, Whistler. Whistler has always been considered as far superior in this respect to Oscar Wilde, and tawneys of repartee are quoted in which invariably the younger man was defeated. Yet on a similar occasion, Whistler, arriving late for lunch and being chidden therefore, found nothing better to do or to say than to fix his eyeglass firmly in his eye, to stare around the room and to cry, Ha ha! Lunch, 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 bunch, bunch, bunch. The hearers laughed and found the wit divine. But when the thing had crystallised, it must have appeared to the hostess even a more pitiful excuse than the one which had been tendered by Oscar Wilde. During his early years in London, Oscar Wilde did not live with his mother and Willie. He occupied lodgings in unfashionable districts. For some months he lived in a couple of furnished rooms in Salisbury Street off the Strand, in the very bohemia of letters. It was not till later that he moved to Charles Street, Grosvenor Square, which was his address during the last period of his bachelor days. His income was a very small one, and the struggle to figure as a man of the world was constant. By mortgaging and selling his property in Ireland, by the help of friends and by anonymous literary work, he was just able to maintain himself. If hopes of wealth ever came to him, they proceeded from the fact that a rich friend, a lady, had bestowed upon him a large quantity of shares in Keeley's perpetual motion engine, a fraud in which she had invested very largely and in which she had the greatest confidence. At one time when Oscar's name was most prominently before London as the darling of London society, his entire assets consisted of a sheaf of these worthless green papers. If his desire in assuming the masquerade of the aesthetic costume was to influence a publisher to accept the risk of printing his poems, success here at least awaited him. He found in David Bogue, who was at that time in business as a high-class publisher in St. Martin's Lane, a commercial man ready to produce his book in the best style. In the Athenaeum for 2nd July 1881, the book was announced in the following terms. Now ready. Crown, 8 volumes, price 10 shillings, sixpence, Poems by Oscar Wilde. Printed on Dutch handmade paper and handsomely bound in parchment. This advertisement to anyone who knows the difficulties that the young aspiring poet has in finding a publisher for his works is a plain certificate of success. The price at which the volume was offered, the paper on which it was printed, and the parchment in which it was bound are all so many tributes to the skill with which the young man had impressed his personality on Business London. It is not in this livery, this court dress rather, that the Cinderella muse goes to the Palace of Fame, unless, indeed, a fairy godmother has intervened. The irony of things shows itself once more on this page of the Athenaeum. As one glances down the list of David Bogue's announcements, one notices among the other new books which he was issuing at the same time as Oscar Wilde's poems, the following works. Music and Morals by Hawaise. Conscious Matter by W. Stuart Duncan, and, here one can almost perceive the sardonic laughter of the immortals, How to Make the Best of Life by J. Mortimer Granville. This volume of poems consisted mainly of reprints of verses which Oscar Wilde had contributed to various periodicals, Cotterboss, the Dublin University magazine, the Irish Monthly, and certain London periodicals and journals. After leaving Oxford, he had published poems in different weekly and monthly papers. Edmund Yates, who had a great esteem for him, and was always his literary and social protector, had opened to him the pages of Time and the Columns of the World – much of his most effective verse had appeared in the world. Of these poems, which have now been reprinted and are open to the judgment, nothing need be said in criticism in this place beyond the fact that they appealed very strongly to the public of the day, and that four editions were readily sold in a few weeks. Many found great delight in them, The great and beautiful Ellen Terry, to whom the young poet dedicated two of the sonnets in this book, was charmed by his tributes. And what better success could a poet desire than having hymned Ellen Terry to win a smile of approval from her lips? Of the two sonnets, to Portia and to Queen Henrietta Maria, which appeared in this book, The one which gave most pleasure to the wonderful and great-hearted artist to whom they were addressed was the latter. This is it. Queen Henrietta Maria In the lone tent waiting for victory She stands with eyes marred by the mists of pain Like some wan lily overdrenched with rain The clamorous clang of arms, the ensanguined day War's ruin, and the rack of chivalry, To her proud soul no common fear can bring. Bravely she tarrieth for her lord the king, Her soul aflame with passionate ecstasy. O hair of gold, O crimson lips, O face, Made for the luring and the love of man, With thee I do forget the toil and stress the loveless road that knows no resting place, time's straitened pulse, the soul's dread weariness, my freedom and my life, Republican. This sonnet then achieved what many sonnets of far greater beauty have failed to achieve. It appealed to the lady to whom it was inscribed. It is still remembered as a tribute by one upon whom tributes have been rained down like the dew of heaven— For the rest, this supreme artist, like many other of the greatest women of the day, has always had admiration for the poet and pity for the man. In the spring of 1905, while England was still wondering whether it would be right and seemly to pronounce the name of the man who, although he had written *De Profundis, had yet ten years previously been convicted of conduct for which he had paid the utmost penalty of the law, and the further penalty of some years of lingering agony and a miserable death. At that time, then, Miss Terry had the courage, speaking publicly at Frascati's at a meeting of the Gallery First Nighters Club, to include the name of Oscar Wilde amongst the list of men whom she used to see at the Lyceum in her old triumphant days. Quote, in the gallery and pit at the dear old Lyceum, she said, there used to be seen faces of many men who had won or were about to win distinction in the world. The Byrne-Joneses, the Justin McCarthys, Alfred Gilbert, the great sculptor, the late Oscar Wilde, the poet O'Shaughnessy. Quote. The reference was a courageous one. The act was worthy of the woman. Its quotation here serves another purpose. It enables us to gather that in the days when Oscar Wilde was writing his verse, he was not a prosperous man. The young man whose circumstances force him to go to the pit or the gallery of the theatre, à la mode, will find difficulty in storming the fortresses of the British aristocracy. For the limitless ambition of his, of which he used to speak as a young man, aimed at the very highest social success. The upper middle class from which he sprung filled him with disdain. He used to speak with contempt of Bayswater as the stronghold of all that was common and vulgar and to be avoided. A Bayswater view of things. He could find nothing more scathing than that. When in the end he found that the higher aristocracy – While willing enough to be amused by him, did not readily yield to his advances, he came to speak with some contempt of the old nobility. They are nothing but exaggerated farmers, he used to say. Amongst the modern Suchet, he had some acquaintances, and perhaps, because of their greater affability, these found no more valorous defender than Oscar Wilde it was an imprudent thing for anyone to venture to joke on the nobility of the big brewers, for he happened to have some friends among men who had risen to the ranks of the aristocracy by the ladder of heaped-up barrels of beer. It is a fact that social success always impressed Oscar Wilde. The man who made money and got on in life enjoyed his regard. For the failure, he had nothing but abhorrence – Intimate friends of his have wondered to hear him speaking with praise of very common fellows who by reason of a little commercial cunning had reached to reputation and prosperity. In this regard he was essentially a worldly man, and, so considered, One wonders whether the anarchist doctrines to which he later yielded did not result from his vexation at the small amount of real social success to which he attained as a young man. In only a very few good houses in London was he taken seriously, or invited as an honoured guest. Literary history affords few more distressing pictures than these early years of Oscar Wilde, where we see a man of supreme superiority wasting his time and humiliating himself in running after the worthless favours of men and women so entirely his inferiors. In the artistic world, however, his success was incontestable. He enjoyed from an early age the friendship and approval of many men of high distinction. He was the associate of Whistler. He sat at the feet of George Meredith. He was the companion of the Pre-Raphaelites, and he proclaimed a sympathy for Swinburne which the elder poet did not reciprocate. In later life he did not often refer to these days, and when he did so it was to talk of the Arcana of London rather than of its heights. He had anecdotes to tell of an extraordinary man named Howell, who seems to have exploited the naive Pre-Raphaelites in a pitiless and constant manner and who had had many amusing passages of arms with Whistler. For the cleverness of this man, Oscar Wilde seemed to have some admiration. He used to quote as a witty saying of Howell's, a retort that he once made when a group of artists, anxious to get rid of him, had offered to pay his passage out to Australia. Who, said Howell, would go to Australia, if he had the money to go with? He found that it was a very clever invention on the part of Howell, being asked one day by Whistler whether he had ever happened to ride in cab number one in London, to have answered, no, but a few days ago I drove home in cab number two. He seems to have watched with poignant interest the career of that unfortunate artist, Solomons, who, as fate would have it, survived Oscar Wilde by some years, and died under circumstances not more tragic than those which attended the death of the man who used to express such pity for his terrible life. That even at the time when patience had been running for some months, and Bogue was announcing his poems at the price of half a guinea, he had not imposed himself on true London society is made clear by a note which Edmund Yates, his friend, inserted in the world as a preliminary announcement of these poems. It appeared in the number for 6th July 1881 and runs as follows quote, People who, hearing of Oscar Wilde, ask who he is and what he has done will now be able to learn, and a volume of Mr. Wilde's collected poems will shortly be published. End quote. That Edmund Yeats had a sincere admiration for Oscar Wilde will be all the more readily understood when it is recorded that many of Wilde's poems which appeared in the world had brought to the editor from different parts of the world letters of high commendation from the readers of that journal. One incident especially appealed to Yeats. It came to his knowledge that a copy of the world containing Wilde's poem Way Imperatrix had been received by a mess of British officers in one of the regiments which followed Lord Roberts on his march to Kandahar, and that these men had been struck with the truth and beauty of the picture which the poet had drawn of the very spot where they were encamped. Sarah Bernhardt's admiration for and friendship with the young poet would also impress that most Parisian of Londoners, Edmund Yates. Sarah always had a high regard for Oscar Wilde. She used to say that she had been charmed with the courtesy of his manner, and with his kindness of heart. Most men who are civil to actresses and render them services, she used to say, have an arrière pensée. It was not so with Oscar Wilde. He was a devoted attendant and did much to make things pleasant and easy for me in London, but he never appeared to pay court. In other words, Sarah had discovered amongst the young men of London one who was an English gentleman in every sense of that much-misused term. And this may be put on record here once and for all. Oscar Wilde was the beau-ideal of an English gentleman. That is to say, the sane Oscar Wilde. What he may have been when his epileptiform fits took him, it is for the outcasts to say who saw him on these rare and mournful occasions. Oscar Wilde's volume of poems, received with enthusiasm by the public, found little favour with the critics. The book was roundly abused, The Saturday Review, which in those days had still some importance as an arbiter in literature, contemptuously disposed of the book in a few sentences at the end of an article on recent poetry. This review appears in the number for 23rd July 1881. It begins, Mr. Wilde's verses belong to a class which is the special terror of the reviewers, the poetry which is neither good nor bad, which calls for neither praise nor ridicule, and in which we search in vain for any personal touch of thought or music. Lower down, quote, The great fault of all such writing as this is the want of literary sincerity which it displays. For instance... Mr. Wilde brings into his verse the names of innumerable birds and flowers, because he likes the sound of their names, not because he has made any observation of their habits. He thinks that the meadow sweet and the wood anemone bloom at the same time. That that shy and isolated flower, the harebell, breaks across the woodlands in masses, like a sudden flush of sea – and that owls are commonly met with in mid-ocean, end quote. Strong exception is next taken to the sensual tone of the poems, and the review concludes with the following, quote, This book is not without traces of cleverness, but it is marred everywhere by imitation, insincerity and bad taste, end quote. This reviewer was no doubt sincere, for we find in his comments the repetition of much that, so far, we have heard raised up in blame against the young poet. We have heard him spoken of as an average sort of man. We know that his educational weakness was a neglect of the rudiments. In this case, he is blamed for a lack of the botanical and zoological rudiments. And we have already seen him charged with imitation of others. Moreover, he is here once more rebuked for that imprudent manner of his of talking about the physical beauties of man and woman, which, later on, was to render him such signal disservice. It was a habit gained from his classical training and his enthusiasm for the literature of the ancients, but it was a literary habit which in modern days was fraught with considerable danger. The Athenaeum gave him the place of honour, in its number for 23rd July, 1881. The long review of his poems accompanied its first page. The review is a very careful one, well written, as are all the reviews in that periodical which stands first amidst the critical papers of the world. It was evidently the work of a man who was not biased either for or against the young poet, And who had very conscientiously prepared himself for his task as the critic of the book. The review was an unfavourable one. It begins Mr. Wilde's volume of poems may be regarded as the evangel of a new creed. From other gospels, it differs in coming after instead of before the cult it seeks to establish. We fail to see, however, continues the reviewer, after an exposition of Oscar Wilde's teachings, that the Apostle of the New Worship has any distinct message. Lower down. "'Turning to the execution of the poems, there is something to admire. Mr. Wilde has a keen perception of some aspects of natural beauty. Single lines might be extracted which convey striking and accurate pictures.' The worst faults are artificiality and insincerity, and an extravagant accentuation of whatever in modern verse most closely approaches the estilo culto of the 16th century. End quote. An able and scientific, if not very charitable, requisitoire bearing out the charges in this indictment follows. The charge of imitation is particularly insisted upon. The sonnet on the massacres of the Christians in Bulgaria reflects Milton's sonnet on the massacres in Piedmont. The Garden of Eros recalls at times Mr Swinburne, at times Alexander Smith. In the descriptions of flowers which occur in the poem Last Named, there is a direct and reiterated imitation of Shakespeare – Some violets lie that will not look the gold sun in the face for fear of too much splendour, reminds one of the pale primroses that die unmarried ere they can behold bright Phoebus in his strength. Mr. Wilde's budding marjoram which but to kiss would sweeten Cytherea's lips, and his meadow-sweet whiter than Juno's throat, bring back the Violets dim, but sweeter than the lids of Juno's eyes or Cytherea's breath. And the rustling bluebells, rustling bluebells is a vile phrase, that come almost before the blackbird finds a mate and overstay the swallow, are but the daffodils that come before the swallow dares. Traces of this kind of imitation abound, and there is scarcely a poet of high mark in the present century whose influence is not perceptible. The conclusion is not an inspiring one. Work of this nature has no element of endurance, and Mr. Wilde's poems, in spite of some grace and beauty, as we have said, will, when their temporary notoriety is exhausted, Find a place on the shelves of those only who hunt after the curious in literature. They may, perhaps, serve as an illustration in some chapter on the revival in the 19th century of the gongerism of the 16th. End quote. Against the charge of imitation, Wilde's warmest friends will not be able, were they desirous of so doing, to defend him. He was essentially an artist, and the artist is essentially imitative. Art is imitation. The only original creation which is not the reproduction of anything else of which we know is the creation of the world, and on that circumstance, the data are too vague for us to be quite certain that here too, imitation did not overhang the labour. Models were certainly not lacking, or the astronomers have misled us. There has never been a writer yet against whom charges of plagiarism have not been brought. Of those charges, Molière briefly and wittingly exonerated himself. Molière was in the right. The artist is entitled to appropriate for his own treatment the thoughts, the conceptions of others. It is not the highest form of literary art – but it gives pleasure, and it is a tribute to the man from whom the borrowing took place. It seems that it would be as unfair to say that a prima donna who sings us the jewel song out of Faust ought not to be listened to because we have heard other prima donna sing that song before she came on the stage. It is one of the most detestable axioms of commercial philistinism that the exclusive right in a thought or a comparison belongs to the man who first voiced them. In the Republic of Letters, and amongst true artists, no such proprietary instinct prevails. It is the true artist's greatest joy to feel that he has given forth fecundating atoms which shall breed beauty in ages to come. Most of the reviews were equally unfavourable. In some, private enmity was allowed to show itself, The notice which appeared in Punch may be humorous. It is certainly not marked with courtesy. As a specimen of the kind of criticism of himself which Oscar Wilde had provoked, some extracts from this notice may be quoted. It commences thus, Mr Lambert Strike in The Colonel published a book of poems for the benefit of his followers and his own. Mr. Oscar Wilde has followed his example. End quote. As Mr. Hamilton points out, the character of Lambert Strike in Vernon's adaptation The Colonel is that of a paltry swindler, who, shamming aesthetic tastes, imposes upon a number of rather silly ladies and is finally exposed by the Colonel. The review continues quote, The cover is consummate. The paper is distinctly precious, the binding is beautiful, and the type is utterly too. Poems by Oscar Wilde, that is the title of the book of the aesthetic singer, which comes to us arrayed in white vellum and gold. There is a certain amount of originality about the binding, but that is more than can be said for the inside of the volume. Mr Wilde may be aesthetic, but he is not original this is a volume of echoes it is swinburne and water while here and there we notice that the author has been reminiscent of mr rossetti and mrs browning End quote the poems were commercially a great success and this success pleased oscar wilde very much he used to speak with pride of the fact that his volume of poems had run into four editions in as many weeks for the rest As his powers developed, he came to look upon this early work in the light of a péché de jeunesse. Certainly the author of Keats' Love Letters, and other of his later poems, could not help but be critical towards the verse contained in this volume. Yet, such as it is, it has outlived the various periods of notoriety which brought their author's name so prominently before the world. Recently republished in America by Mr Mosher of Portland, a large and constant demand for the book continues. Already at the time of its original publication, the American edition met with great success. In a paragraph in the world for 9th November 1881, we read, Mr Oscar Wilde has arranged to leave England next month for America, where he will deliver lectures on art subjects. Mr. Wilde's volume of poems, which has had a very large sale in America, will have prepared the way for him and no doubt ensured him a brilliant reception in that country. I hear that Mr. Wilde is also making arrangements for bringing out an original play before he leaves London. End quote. The play here referred to is Vera, a nihilist drama. It was not produced until much later in America, where it met with instant failure. The great objection to the play was the fact that it contains only one female role, that of Vera, the nihilist heroine. This drama has been printed and can be obtained in London with various annotations. It was not as amiably represented by Edmund Yates as the author of a successful volume of poems that Oscar Wilde received encouragement to go to America to lecture, It was suggested to him that a good deal of curiosity existed in that country in the aesthetic movement and school, that his personality aroused interest, and that a profitable lecturing campaign might be carried out there. At the same time, he was anxious to produce Vera, which he had not been able to place upon the stage in London. He had no arrangement with any impresario when he left England, Major Pond afterwards undertook to run him in the States, that is to say, after his appearance at the Chickering Hall and his success there. He sailed on board the Arizona on Saturday, 24th December, 1881, his original intention being to deliver one lecture on the recent growth of art in England, and he proposed to be absent for three or four months. A few days before his departure, There appeared in the world, under the heading of The Lights of London, a sketch of him by H.B., described as Ego up to Snuffibus Poeta, with certain humorous verses attached, of which the following may be quoted. Quote, Albeit nurtured in democracy, and liking best that state bohemian, where each man borrows sixpence and no man has aught but paper collars, yet I see exactly where to take a liberty. Better to be thought one whom most abuse for speech of donkey and for look of goose than that the world should pass in silence by. Wherefore I wear a sunflower in my coat, cover my shoulders with my flowing hair, tie verdant satin round my open throat. Culture and love I cry, and ladies' smile, and seedy critics overflow with bile, while with my prince-long-syke's meal I share. This parody meant to be friendly, but there can be no doubt that it aroused bitter feelings of self-reproach in Oscar Wilde's mind. Of self-reproach, but also of indignant revolt against the order of things which in these modern days condemns a man of action to inactivity, who, if he would emerge from the stagnant obscurity to which the world condemns him, must play the part of pantaloon. Vital Full of genius and of that physical energy which is the genius of the body, fitted for any part that the world has ever yet bestowed upon a man, he found himself at 27 years of age crossing the Atlantic in masquerade, to amuse, to be laughed at, and, in his bitter humiliation, to appear to take pleasure in the part. In the whole of his mournful career, few periods could have been more full of suffering. We reach here the heights of tragedy to which Shakespeare attains in King Lear. Higher heights, for the king was here a youth. We are to remember too that the man was a man of genius, and that being so, he could not help but show it. End of chapter 8